Thanks for tuning in to the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today I have the honor of speaking with Justice James O'Reilly about writing effective court submissions. Justice O'Reilly is a judge of the Federal Court of Canada and president of the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice, where he's been co-chair of the Judgment Writing Seminar for the past 10 years. Before his appointment to the Federal Court in 2002, Justice O'Reilly taught law at several Canadian universities, as well as the Law Society of Ontario. He ran a solo practice specializing in legal policy and law reform, and he worked with the Law Reform Commission of Canada, the National Judicial Institute, the Department of Justice, and the Supreme Court of Canada. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Justice O'Reilly. Thanks so much for being here. I want to start off with a topic that may elicit a few groans from listeners, grammar. How important would you say grammar is in crafting good court submissions? Well, here's the thing that you don't want to have happen is to have the judge stumbling over um, mixed metaphors or inappropriate idioms and worst of all, incorrect grammar so those are all things that get in the way of a of a good argument you know you might find a judge if if there's a particularly poor set of submissions saying this person can't write a sentence how can they understand the law you know that's that's overly harsh obviously Uh, but you don't want to uh, stimulate in the judge some kind of negative reaction to what should really be uh, fairly superficial things but you know, it, it still still happens. Um, I stumble over them occasionally, um, try to withhold judgment about the merits, um, but it doesn't make for, for a pleasant task reading a set of submissions that has um, barbarisms in, in it, if you could put it that way. So what does make for a more pleasant read? Well, the, the thing that you want to have happen is for the judge to be receptive to the argument. And I, I love being persuaded by a set of written submissions um, to, to see uh, an argument that's laid out on the page that's organized, structured, obviously prepared thoughtfully, um, that's, that's clear in terms of what the issues are and clear in terms of what the outcome should be uh, for, the, uh, for the lawyer's client. Uh, those things are, are a joy to read, and when a lawyer provides that kind of document to a judge, you're going to get a receptive judge, and that's the most you can hope for. Um, you're not necessarily going to win every case because you're a superior uh, writer to your opponent, but you may have a leg up, and uh, that's the most you can hope for, and that's what your job is when you're supplying written submissions to the court. Mm-hmm. And what kinds of structure or structural things do you look for? Things I'm going to mention are things that I tell to judges. So it really is the, the very same thing you would hope to see in a good set of written reasons that we would like to see in terms of written submissions provided to us. These days, what judges expect is that the submissions will start off with an overview which is somewhat different than an introduction. An overview should should give you kind of a summary of the case as a whole, 
and uh, alert the judge to to what's coming in the uh, the submissions to follow. Uh, having a good overview uh, shows the judge that you have a good grasp of your own case, and uh, that's extremely persuasive on its own. If you know what your issues are, you know what your opponents submissions are likely to be, you have an answer for those submissions. If you can supply that answer in a summary form, in an overview, that's a big head start. But what, what you want to have happen thereafter is have the uh, submissions track what you've put in your overview so that the issues that you will have mentioned are laid out probably with subheadings to follow. The uh, opponent's arguments are summarized under each heading. Your answer to those arguments follows, and the outcome that you wish to see, obviously, is the ultimate conclusion. So that would be kind of an overview, if you like, of what a good set of reasons looks like. Okay, uh, that's super helpful. And I just want to circle back to uh, a comment you made right at the beginning about the difference between an overview and an introduction. So what I mean by an overview is um, is a summary of what the case is about, what the issues are, and what your answer is to those issues, and what you think the outcome should be. Um, that is kind of like the, the overture for, uh, for a, a Broadway musical. You, in an overture, you typically get little bits of all of the music that's going to follow throughout the rest of the evening. And what you'll get in, an, in a good overview for a set of submissions is a sense of each of the things that you're going to read about in the ensuing submissions, the issues, the answers, and the outcome. So an introduction might be something uh, much shorter and not tell the judge very much except perhaps what the cause of action is about in a civil context. You know, in my world, in, in a patent case, for example, an introduction might say, this case is about a patent that was issued 20 years ago for such and such a product, and we allege infringement by the uh, party on the other side. That would give you an introduction to what the case is about, but it wouldn't tell you what the issues are or uh, what your response is to those issues or the outcome that you're seeking. So, so there, there's a big difference, and an overview is really helpful in, in getting the judge oriented to the case to your position in the case. Uh, it provides a context for everything else that follows. And do you see that often? Do you see more overviews and introductions? Almost always now. Um, and it, part of that, I think, is uh, a product of judges themselves doing it. You know, we, we teach judges to do this uh, when they're writing reasons. And uh, I think that that kind of thing has spilled over into the practicing bar. You know, the people who teach judges how to write are often teaching lawyers how to write. And I think they teach the very same thing, which I think is, is appropriate. So we're seeing that more and more uh, in the submissions we're getting. What do you wish you would see more of? Um, I'll come, and we may come back to this about, about the discipline, discipline of writing. Uh, and what I would like to see more of is that uh, people are uh, imposing that discipline on themselves when they're preparing submissions for the court. 
And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, the old expression, I don't know what I really think until I write it down. And I, that applies to me when I'm writing a set of reasons and uh, the, the discipline of writing out an answer to a question uh, it imposes on you a logic, it imposes on you the need to be clear and to have uh, a definitive conclusion. Uh, I'd like to see more of that. And, and, and I, again, I've seen similar things to what we're teaching judges in uh, many of the submissions we're getting now. And that is that, uh, just to give an example about how discipline can work, to, to pose the issues as questions so that uh, each issue in a case would be would be a question that is going to be answered within the submissions. So going back to my patent uh, example, that does the, the molecule that's being uh, manufactured by the defendant uh, resemble the molecule that's been patented by my company? Uh, so pose that as a question and then you answer it. And, and the way the discipline works with that is Everything that helps to answer that question should be under that heading. And everything that has nothing to do with that question should be taken out or placed elsewhere. So it provides kind of a filter for what you tell the judge within each issue. Um, you impose that discipline on yourself. So everything the judge sees in relation to that issue is going to be right there. And don't forget that one of the main things you're, you're doing um, by providing submissions is not just to persuade the judge, but to give the judge a resource. Because after you walk away from the courtroom, the judge is going to have the written submissions in his or her hand and use them when writing the, the reasons. So the judge has to be able to find what's necessary to deal with the issues that arise in the case. And if they're all set out, in a disciplined way within each issue, that will be enormously helpful. Well, that seems like a big task for a lawyer to tackle. Um. <laughs> well, it is, and it is for judges too. Um, the th thing about that is that you get good at it. Uh, it's something that's worth putting the time into. Uh, maybe not on every set of written submissions you prepare. Maybe you'll have more time in one case than you have in another case. Or maybe it's more important for you to do so in one case than in another case. But if you practice it, if you work at it, it becomes natural and it becomes easier for, for you to do and you become more efficient at it. I find that in my, my own writing, now I know exactly what every judgment is going to look like. I mean, the issues are different, the headings vary, but it's going to look the same. I can, I can sit down after I've heard a case and put out uh, on a piece of paper exactly what the headings will be uh, and how I'm going to answer the questions that I'm posing uh, within the judgment. So it's a very thoughtful uh, writing process not just putting pen to paper, fingers to the keyboard, and seeing what comes out, and then you know, issuing that. Some people work that way. Um, I don't, I, I never have, uh, but I know there are a lot of writers, um, not just legal writers or judges, 
who just sit down at a keyboard or with a pad of paper and just write. And that's fine. That's actually not a bad way to start um, if you're feeling in a hurry to get ideas out onto the page or to put things down that you think you might forget or overlook later on. There's nothing wrong with that. And don't forget there's really no such thing as good writing. There's only good rewriting. So you can take that product that you've uh, that you've prepared that is kind of a stream of consciousness uh, piece of work, but then take it and organize it. Put the ideas where they belong, put the facts where they belong, put the arguments where they belong, and uh, and try to achieve the kind of product that I'm describing. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you have to keep in mind who is actually going to be reading that final product. Audience is, is very important, and so we're talking about an audience made up of, of judges, um, busy people um, who uh, appreciate receiving submissions that will be helpful to them in preparing their reasons. So that one thing to keep in mind is, what can I do for the judge to help him or her write a set of reasons? That in itself will get you a receptive audience. Uh, and uh, judges obviously appreciate that a great deal. Uh, I tell lawyers, your submissions should actually look like a judgment. Uh, you should have an overview, the issues, the answer, the, uh, the submissions that you anticipate or you've heard from the other side and the outcome that you're seeking. All of that is in a good set of reasons coming from a judge. So in effect, if you can get the judge to look at your submissions and say, I could probably sign this as a set of reasons, even though they never will. Um, But if you get that kind of reception from the judge, that's obviously advantageous for you. Don't forget what the Supreme Court has said is that there's nothing wrong with judges copying from the the submissions that they receive uh, to a certain point. Uh, And so... If you can um, provide a set of uh, reasons that a judge might be in, inclined to copy, whether or not they actually do so, that, that's an advantage. It's, to, it's a shortcut that the, that the judge can use. I'm wondering if there are any particular things that uh, lawyers do in their written submissions that annoy you. <laughs> uh, well, where's the... First thing I can think of, um, maybe the only one it, it, in terms of what might annoy me. Um, there's some lawyers who think that uh, putting drama into their written submissions will be helpful. And that, that can appear in different ways. It could be uh, using exclamation marks or underlining or boldface type or asking rhetorical questions, uh, or using inflammatory language. There's something about doing that on the page that is kind of irritating and makes it hard to read. Uh, You're inclined to think, uh, this person is overstating the case, which actually weakens it in the eyes of the the judge who's reading the submissions. It, It makes you question uh, the merits that are being uh, put forward 
um, in the written submissions. So I find that that's uh, extremely unhelpful um, in written submissions. But by contrast, it doesn't bother me at all in an oral hearing. Uh, if a lawyer has a strong feeling or, or wants to impress upon you the consequences of a particular outcome for their client, I'm perfectly happy to hear that um, and hear it expressed forcefully. But there's something about putting it on the page that makes it seem shallower um, than, than what it may be. And so I find that that's extremely unhelpful. It's far better to have just a solid, clear, uh, forceful set of reasons without extra drama. What about long quotations? And again, this is something that, that we tell judges not to do. Um, judges do it uh, quite often um, out of fear that they're, they're going to overlook uh, a legal point or, or misstate uh, what the authorities say on a given point. So they just lay it out in a judgment. It's, it's far more persuasive to take um, those authorities and make them your own. And what I mean by that is absorb what they have to say and, and put those concepts in your own words, if possible. Now, that's a lot of work. It, it is a lot easier to say, here are the top five cases on, on this, and these are the relevant passages that you should look at. That I understand the inclination to do that in order to be complete and, um, and to, be, to provide submissions that are in keeping with the prevailing jurisprudence. Uh, but chances are the judge is not going to read those. Hmm. In fact, no one reads them. Uh, I'm sure if I, I almost never have quotations in my judgments, but if I were to start putting them in, I'm sure no one would read them, even if you underline uh, the relevant passages within it, they'll, they'll skip over it. And there's an inclination um, in doing quotations to, to indent them, single space them, and, uh, and make them in smaller font to, so they don't take up too much space. All those things incline the person not to read them because um, they, they mm -hmm. think that they're just not, not as important. So the ideal thing is to take those legal concepts and make them your own by putting them into your own words. It'll be far shorter, you'll use less space, uh, which the judge will appreciate um, so that he or she doesn't have to read uh, a lot of material that's not that helpful or, or to even to skip over material that's not that helpful. The other option mm -hmm. is to um, just have a snippet from a case. Quite often, it's only a sentence that you really need or even part of a sentence. It might just be uh, a, a sentence fragment that sets out a test that applies to your case. Um, far better to incorporate that into your own paragraph on that, that particular point um, or to have a very short quotation following um, your own description of what the, what the law is. So it's something that we see still a lot. I understand the inclination for it, but it's far more persuasive if you can take that material and make it your own by putting it into your own words. Mm -hmm. So paraphrasing uh, or sort of pulling out some of the key uh, terms or phrases so they actually stand out and it's more likely that a judge is going to read them. That's true. And, and also make sure you give the pinpoint reference so that the judge can actually 
find it and make sure that uh, that the way you've characterized it is accurate. Judges don't mind mind doing that at all. In fact, it's it's required uh, in preparing uh, any set of reasons. But uh, so, but by paraphrasing what the law says, don't forget to cite to the cases or the uh, or the authorities you you want to refer to. Mm-hmm. And where do you like to see those citations? I like to see them right in the in the paragraph. There, there's a there's a way to do this so that it makes it easier to read. I try to do it in my own writing, and that is put all of the uh, citations that you're relying on at the end of a paragraph, or at least at the end of a sentence, so you're not stumbling over over the uh, case references as you're trying to um, parse out. The, uh, the the written argument that that's being made. Footnotes are another way to do it. Um, of course, it makes a, a cleaner page. Um, I, I have no no objection to it doing that. Someone doing it that way, but um, I think the better way is to try to incorporate it all within the uh, the actual written uh, paragraphs. Oftentimes, I think it's a challenge uh, when we're writing submissions to decide how much from a case to include. I would say try to put as as little as you think is necessary into the written submissions. Uh, Provide the judge uh, the references uh, so that he or she can can find them for further reading. But in in terms of reading through what, what... the argument that you're making to the judge, um, having a, a set of quotations or um, uh, laying out facts from another case that um, that may or may not be relevant or, or may, may, may or may not be necessary, I guess is a better way to, to put it. Um, would it, It's just better to have, have less. Less is more in, in this context as, as long as the judge is um, satisfied that you've actually looked at those cases and uh, have made a clear submission uh, about why or why not they they bind the judge or should persuade the judge uh, in a direction that favors your client. So uh, try try to include as as little as possible while, while maintaining the flow of your argument. I'm thinking about other ways to make uh, submissions more concise as we're talking about how to, how to give, make sure that you're only including the information that's necessary in order for uh, the judge to um, make a reasoned decision. Uh, one thing that comes up is use of acronyms and defined terms. I'm just wondering if you have a view on that. Um, are we talking about what some people call parenthetical aliases? <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that, but that's a wonderful, wonderful description. <laughs> well, I, and again, I, I think that comes from Jim Raymond, who's, of course, one of the world's experts on legal writing. And he discourages their use, by the way, which won't surprise you, given it, it's kind of a pejorative appellation. <laughs> but... Um, I, uh, I, my rule is uh, use whatever is going to be 
easiest to understand in the context of your submission. So you often see, um, and you see it in judgments all the time, and it, it has, I must say, it drives me a little bit crazy, where, for example, a, a judge might say, uh, this is a judicial review of a decision of the Canadian Human Rights Commission, and then bracket, quotation marks, the commission, bracket, and, and so on. And then from then on, they refer to the Canadian Human Rights Commission as just the commission. Well, you know, it's very unlikely the reader is going to be confused about what the commission is. Um, if you've already referred to it as the Canadian Human Rights Commission, they're not going to, in the next sentence, seeing the word commission, think that there's some other commission that's being talked about other than the one that's just been referred to. So I, I tend not to use those parenthetical aliases. Um, mm -hmm. I, might, I might use CHRC or, or something like that. But, you know, if you're reading that, it, what's easier is to, to read CHRC or just the commission. Uh, to me, I think it's the latter, and I wouldn't have to tell the reader what commission I'm talking about. I've already mentioned what it is. So I tend not to use those references. If you look at a, at a newspaper, for example, they never do that, but they do, they do exactly the same thing when they're talking about a body whose initials um, include four or five words um, or, or make reference to four or five words. You know, they might refer to the CRTC, for example. That's easy because everyone knows what it is. But if they were introducing a body no one's ever heard to and then uh, has never heard of and then referred to it in the next sentence as uh, the board or the tribunal or the decision maker or whatever it might be, no one's going to be confused. And uh, uh, I don't think anyone should be confused in, in a legal context uh, any more than in a journalistic context. So I, my advice is just use whatever you think is going to be easier for the person to read. Uh, I have sort of a, a rule in my own head that if something has five initials, I'll never use it because that's just too many. I'll refer to it as <laughs> the commission or the tribunal or whatever it might be, rather than using the initials because it's just going to be easier for the person to read. They're not going to read out to themselves five or six or seven initials. Uh, it's just unnecessary. We know who, the, who we're talking about. What about the parties? Do you like them to be referred to by their sort of names within the proceeding, their procedural names, you know, appellant, uh, respondent, plaintiff, defendant, or their actual names? I, in my own work, almost always use names um, unless it's, um, again, going back to my rule, unless it's going to be confusing. For example, if I have a case where there are two plaintiffs, uh, I probably am not going to refer to uh, Mr. Smith and, um, and Mrs. Jenkins uh, throughout the body of the, uh, of the decision. I'm going to just refer to them as the plaintiffs because that would just be too tedious to use their names over and over again. But if I have a, a single person um, who's a plaintiff or an applicant or an appellant, I almost always use their name. And even when, in our case, we have 
applicants from all over the world, their, their family name might have 20 syllables, but I use it because I want the person to know I'm, I'm dealing with a real person. I'm dealing with the person who has come to the court for relief. And I wanted to tell that person, win or lose, exactly why I'm deciding um, as I am. And so I'm speaking directly uh, to and about that person. Are there any um, you know, other phrases that you feel may be overused in the submissions that um, are before you? Some words, phrases, maybe we can try to get lawyers to eliminate <laughs> from their submissions? Um, well, almost all Latin phrases these days, except for the odd ex expression, they, they tend just to obfuscate rather than illuminate. Um, you know, I try to use um, very few. I try, try not to use them at all. Or, or if I use them, I'll uh, provide my own definition of, of what it means. Uh, for example, you, you have a case that's about raised judicata, for example. I mean, we, most of us will know what that is, but I, I'm writing to a larger audience, um, typically, or at least I try to. I'll say, uh, I'll use the term raised judicata because it's, it's in all of the cases and it's in all of the submissions I received. Uh, but I'll say that is that the matter has already been decided. Um, and so if lawyers can do that in their own writing, the judges will find it helpful because then they can they can avoid some of the jargon that they would, would probably like to avoid. Um, so that kind of uh, expression, I think, can be can be helpful if you can avoid uh, an expression that whose meaning may not be entirely clear um, in the context, uh, and use use something something else or or use a, uh, a definition that you've devised yourself, I think that could be quite helpful. I would highly recommend that uh, every lawyer have uh, at least one good legal writing guide on his or her desk. Um, and there are many of them around. If I were in my Ottawa office, and someday I hope I will be again, um, <laughs> I would have I would have a bookshelf full of uh, legal writing guides. Some of them written by judges, some of them written for judges, and some of them uh, written um, for broader purposes, uh, for about writing in general. Um, and what I would suggest is take up one of those guides and don't read it cover to cover. Um, fix yourself on a particular chapter and try some of the techniques that are being described um, in that particular chapter. Try it out uh, on your next set of written submissions and then on the next set, try something different. You're never going to um, have a perfect set of submissions and a set of submissions that will abide by every set of instructions you'll find in a good writing guide. Um, but each time you pick it up and try something, you're gonna make your, uh, your submissions better. Each mm -hmm. set of submissions you make is an opportunity for you to try to do a better job. I think that about my own writing. Every judgment I write gives me an opportunity to try to write a better set of reasons um, uh, than, than I issued yesterday. 
they say to judges, you know, you should really be practicing this, these techniques and lawyers should be doing the same, practicing using uh, clear language, uh, active verbs, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and um, judges should be doing the same. I, I asked judges, um, when in his career did Roger Federer decide that he no longer had to pra practice his backhand? And the answer, of course, is never. And there should never be a point in your legal career where you're not practicing doing better writing. Um, and every every time you prepare a set of submissions uh, that provides you that opportunity. It's a bit, a bit painful, I should say, that sometimes you have lawyers citing back to you uh, d decisions that you wrote 10 years ago and you think, I could have done better and I probably, I hope... I can do better today than I did 10 years ago. Um, so it, the, the painful reality gets presented to us on a fairly regular basis. Is there any sort of one final point you'd like to leave listeners with? I tell people who ask what it's like to be a judge that, uh, well, it's, it's like uh, being in graduate school and always having five major essays do on any given day and the standard uh the passing standard is perfection that's what it feels like to be a judge um, some days because you really are trying to issue the perfect judgment um knowing that you're going to fail so uh, that's uh that's the nature of my job um, but lawyers are in a similar position they want to put forward their very best work product. We know that, that everyone has the best of intentions to provide the court with the very uh, best written submissions that, uh, that can be made. Um, but they're, they're not going to be perfect, and uh, we understand that. Um, and uh, what we are looking for is not perfection, but, but uh, a set of submissions that are going to be helpful to us. You've been so helpful to us, so I really appreciate you taking time to speak on this super important topic. And it was wonderful hearing your unique perspective on legal writing. So thank you so much, Justice O'Reilly. It's been my pleasure talking to you, Shelley. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you'll tune in next time when I'll be speaking with perfectionism expert, Professor Gordon Flett, about the impact of perfectionism on lawyers. Before then, please reach out to me with your questions, topic ideas, and suggested guests for future episodes at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com. -E